Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Scholars and Scribes Review the Rulings, the Supreme Court's 2020-2021 term. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Vice President of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government. We hope you enjoy the program. Okay, back to public events at Heritage. Well, welcome, uh, everybody. Yes, we have uh, a, a nice audience here, and I know that we have a lot of people who are joining us uh, online, so I want to welcome you all uh, to Scholars and Scribes, which is our annual a roundup of the recently completed term. Uh, so the Supreme Court stayed out of the election disputes and Justice Stephen Breyer decided to stick around for at least one more term. Uh, and of course, there were opinions. In short, as usual, we have a lot to talk about and we have a terrific panel to do just that. Uh, I am joined by two outstanding scholars, Josh Blackman, who is joining us uh, virtually, and Greg Garr. And we are grateful to have back with us uh, two veterans of this program, two outstanding award-winning uh, scribes, Jess Braven and Adam Liptak. We have a lot to cover and an ambitious agenda, and therefore I'm going to end up giving each of them a brief introduction, way shorter than they deserve, uh, so that we can get right to it. Uh, so first, Josh Blackman, there he is. Uh, Josh is an associate professor of law at South Texas College of Law in Houston, where he specializes in constitutional law, the US Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. After graduating from the George Mason uh, Law School, now of course the Scalia Law School, he clerked for Judge Kim Gibson on the Western District of Pennsylvania and then for Judge Danny Boggs on the Sixth Circuit. Uh, in addition to being a regular contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy, he's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and the founder and president of the Harlan Institute. He is the author of three books, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Needs to Know, and two books about Obamacare. He'll have to tell us, of course, whether there is a third book in the offing after this year's opinion. There is. And then we have uh, to my left here, Greg Garr. Greg is a partner at Latham & Watkins and the global chair of the firm Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. A graduate of George Washington University Law School, Greg Clerk for Judge Anthony Sirica on the Third Circuit, and Chief Justice William Rehnquist. He served as the 44th Solicitor General of the United States from 2008 to 2009. Prior to that, he had served as an assistant uh, to the Solicitor General and also as Principal Deputy Solicitor General. He's the only person, by the way, to have held all three of those positions. Uh, he's argued 45 cases in front of the Supreme Court, including many high-profile cases on a wide array of issues, and he's just, he has also served served as counsel of record in hundreds more. He's been consistently recognized as one of the nation's premier Supreme Court and appellate advocates by many leading publications and has received numerous awards, including the Attorney General's Medallion for Service to Solicitor General, the Attorney General's Distinguished Service Award, and the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Furthering the Interests of U.S. National Security. Uh, on the far side, we have uh, Jess Braven. Jess is a Supreme Court reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's a graduate of Berkeley Law School and the John Jacobs Fellow at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism and Institute of Government Studies. 
He used to work as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Los Angeles Times. He's also a contributor to many other publications, including the Washington Post, uh, Spy Magazine, Harper's Bazaar. Uh, he's a former member of the University of California's Board of Regents and a city council appointee uh, to the Berkeley, California Police Review Commission and Zoning Adjustment Board. He's the author of two books, one having to do with the military trials in Guantanamo Bay and the other, The Life and Times of Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who was a member of the Manson family who attempted to assassinate former <laughs> President Ford. In between Greg and Jess, uh, we have Adam Liptak. Uh, Adam is the Supreme Court correspondent of the New York Times, where he has a very long history. Uh, after graduating Yale, Adam worked at the New York Times as a copyboy. He then went to Yale Law School and worked at the New York Times during a legal department uh, during the summers. He spent a few years at the New York firm of Cahill Gordon, where he specialized in what else? First Amendment law uh, before joining the Times legal department in 1992. In 2002, he switched over to the news staff and the rest, as they say, is history. And now I will sit down and we'll start talking about some of the cases. And Adam, we're going to start with you. Uh, I'm going to talk about what in many ways is the most surprising decision uh, of the term, or it was to me, uh, Fulton against City of Philadelphia. It's another clash between uh, religious freedom and gay rights in the mold of the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. You recall the Colorado baker who didn't want to make a custom cake for a same-sex wedding. Um, and one thing I would not have predicted is a unanimous Supreme Court on the bottom line in favor of religion. Uh, there were deep divisions in the case nonetheless, but that the three liberals should join on uh, to this project struck me as quite surprising. Uh, the case involved the following question. Uh, the city of Philadelphia runs a government program, foster care, and it contracts with about 20 uh, agencies, private agencies in Philadelphia to do work, including screening potential foster parents. Uh, Catholic Social Services was one of those agencies, uh, independent contractor, uh, and it objected to a provision in the Philadelphia contract, which uh, required it not to discriminate on the basis of many of the usual factors and including sexual orientation. Uh, that, the Catholic agency said, uh, violated its religious beliefs, and it should not be required to follow that co uh, contractual requirement. Uh, the Catholic agency, just to be clear, objected to unmarried couples, uh, unmarried in its view of marriage, whether same sex or opposite sex, and it said it didn't have a problem with unmarried gay and lesbian potential foster parents. Uh, all of this was on the whole theoretical because there's no evidence that any gay couple applied to Catholic Social Services to be screened as a potential foster parent. Uh, and the agency said, not unpersuasively, that if one had, they'd just send them to somebody else. But nonetheless, the question is, uh, is Philadelphia free to have this contractual provision? It goes to the Supreme Court, and among the questions presented is a very large one about whether to overrule Employment Division against Smith, which took the view of the Free Exercise Clause that if a law is neutral on its face and of general applicability, uh, it is uh, typically going to be okay. 
the sixth justice majority, uh, the chief justice, Justices Kavanaugh, Barrett, and the three liberals took a kind of exit ramp. <clears throat> and some people view this exit ramp as, in Justice Alito's words, so make work uh, that it will not have an impact in future cases. And it's as though uh, Justice Alito wrote, it was written on the vanishing paper you find in magic shops. I commend a, a colleague of ours um, on, on SCOTUS blog, called around a bunch of magic shops, unable to <laughs> obtain any of this disappearing paper. Disappeared. <laughs> um, so, so, so the Chief Justice is out. Uh, is I mean, both sides get the strict scrutiny, uh, but the Chief Justice gets the strict strict scrutiny uh, by saying that this is not a law of general applicability because the contract, in a provision never employed in the pure good of theory, allows discretion. And so long as somebody has at least the theoretical ability to allow some sort of exceptions to the contract, you have to give religion an exception to. Um, that is actually not so trivial as I make it sound, because uh, this idea that any exception anywhere in a government program, which almost of necessity has an exception somewhere, gives religion a most favored nation right, is not a small step. And that step we saw also reflected in the shadow docket emergency applications on state efforts to uh, prohibit uh, religious gatherings in light of the pandemic. So, so that's 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 where the six justices end up. Uh, they don't, of course, overrule employment division against Smith. Two justices, and this is a, a telling piece of the term. You can sort of see who's in the middle and who's not. Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Kavanaugh, expresses grave doubts about Smith, but says we'll leave it for another day. And then uh, in dissent, the three most conservative members of the court, uh, Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, uh, file or join two different concurring opinions, one by Alito, one by Gorsuch. And Justice Alito, in I think the Chief Justice's opinion was 15 pages long, Justice Alito responds with a 77-page aggrieved concurrence in the judgment, uh, making the case that employment division doesn't work, should be overruled. And the length of it made at least some people speculate. And the fact that the liberals joined onto something they cannot have been happy about, that there was a lot of internal discussion and deliberation, and perhaps even that Justice Alito had lost the majority. So I, I want to ask, uh, include, including you, Josh, uh, if you have anything that you want to add. Uh, I, I know one thing that's I've heard some speculation about is whether whether Barrett and Kavanaugh were sending a signal of we might very well want to overturn Employment Division versus Smith, but not in this case. Or whether they were sending a signal we really don't want to overturn Employment Division versus Smith. I'm curious whether any of you have any thoughts on that. I mean, I, I, I guess I don't think they were send, sending the signal that they necessarily don't want to rule it, just that they weren't prepared to do it uh, this year. I, I think that the decision is kind of remarkable in two, res, two of the respects that Adam mentioned that sort of uh, signify this term. One is is the sort of surprising consensus that we saw in some of the higher 
profile and even typically more contentious areas like religion. And this was the signature case for that. And the other, I think, is that Justice Barrett showed herself to be you know, maybe a little bit more cautious and incrementalist than some had predicted and some had feared before she went on the court uh, last fall. If I could, I, if I I could jump in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. I think Justice Barrett is somewhat averse to strict scrutiny. Um, if you look at the questions she flagged in Fulton, she was very worried about what would it mean if Alito's right and virtually every claim gets strict scrutiny. Uh, Follow-up to the AFP case, which we'll be talking about in a moment, Barrett also was not willing to apply strict scrutiny to the association claim. She followed exacting scrutiny. So I think in general, her MO is we don't use this sort of rigid scrutiny. I think that point is more indicative than her discussion of stare decisis. She does not like rigid rules, and that I think we're seeing that already. I would, you know, looking that looking at at this case, you know, uh, in its broader context, maybe there is just a reluctance to overrule Smith and to give religion uh, such a, a privileged uh, place in a gay rights case, because you look at the uh, the as Anne mentioned the the Tandon versus Newsom uh, uh, procurium decision that was involving a COVID restriction. There, we didn't see any real hesitancy from uh, Kavanaugh or Barrett to. Uh, require a strict scrutiny for a religious uh, uh, exercise. You saw them turn down the Arlene's Flowers case, which also presented a, a similar kind of claim. And so maybe they are still have not found a way, at least a majority has not found a way to reconcile the uh, expanding recognition of, of gay rights with the expanding recognition of religious rights. And if they have to make a decision regarding Smith, uh, they just don't want to do it in this case, they'd rather involve some unrelated, more uh, uh, you know, less uh, less uh, touchy kind of topic. All right. Well, let's move on to our next case: uh, Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta. So, this was a case involving a, a challenge to a California regulation requiring requiring nonprofits to disclose their uh, donors to California authorities. So, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about that case? Sure. So, as John indicated, this case is a clash between the First Amendment and rules requiring the disclosure of membership lists of private organizations. And it arose out of a California scheme that establishes various registration requirements for uh, charitable organizations in the state. But then also as part of those requirements requires the disclosures of the names and addresses of donors who've contributed more than $5,000 in a given year. And it does so actually by requiring the groups to submit a form that they have to submit with the the IRS, the federal IRS already, Schedule B of IRS Form uh, 990. Um, the disclosures are meant to be confidential, but during the course of, of the litigation, it was disclosed that California had not been uh, exactly perfect in keeping them confidential, and thousands of, of, of these lists had actually been released inadvertently on a website run by the uh, California Attorney General. So this requirement has been out there for a while, but in 2010, California, the AG's office, ramped up its efforts to enforce it and ended up uh, sending thousands of deficiency letters to various charitable organizations that had not uh, made the requisite disclosures. And two of those groups ended up bringing suit, um, alleging that the disclosure requirements violated the First Amendment, not only as applied to them, but actually on their base. Uh, on the last 
day of, of the term, the court handed down a 6-3 decision in favor of the plaintiffs holding that the laws were unconstitutional uh, on their face. Uh, it was a 6-3 decision that, unlike some of the other decisions that we're going to talk about today, actually broke down essentially on ideological grounds, although there were two separate concurring opinions uh, among the conservative justices uh, that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. So the chief justice wrote the decision for the court, and he began with the discussion of NCAA versus Alabama, the famous case in which the court held that the Alabama AG could not require um, the NAACP to disclose its membership list. And in that case, arose out of the efforts of the Alabama AG's office to crack down on the NAACP's efforts to um, uh, promote racial integration in education uh, and transportation in the state. And the court held that that, that disclosure requirement or, or disclosure effort of the NAACP's uh, membership list violated the First Amendment. So working off of that, really the most important doctrinal question in this case was, what standard of a review would apply to the plaintiff's claim challenging these sorts of disclosure uh, requirements? And uh, there was a range, starting with first, the First Amendment. Typically, when you have First Amendment, classic First Amendment violation, you have strict scrutiny. Underneath that, there is what's called uh, exacting scrutiny. And this sort of comes from the, the Buckley case. It's sort of, think of it as strict scrutiny light. Um, and then below that, you've got sort of a range of some kind of um, matching between the interests uh, of, the, of the state and the intrusion on, on the, the, uh, the groups. And the, the Chief Justice um, and the court ultimately held that exacting scrutiny would apply to these disclosure requirements. And here, uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett joined the Chief Justice's decision holding that exacting scrutiny applied. Um, uh, Justice Thomas concurred separately. He said he would have applied strict scrutiny, and Justices Alito and Gorsuch said, well, in this case, since the disclosure requirements flunk both exacting scrutiny and strict scrutiny, we really don't need to decide, so we could sort of punt that question for later. So, you know, as we were talking about in the Fulton case, where some of the members of the court thought they could sort of punt the Smith issue here, um, Alito and Gorsuch thought that they could sort of reserve question for the later day and, and keep strict scrutiny in play. Uh, applying the exacting scrutiny, the chief and the court had, you know, I think essentially little difficulty holding that the California requirements violated the First Amendment. They acknowledged that there was sort of an important interest in the abstract in preventing fraud among charitable organizations, but that uh, there was a dr dramatic mismatch here, which is what the the chief called it, between that, that general interest and this broad disclosure requirement and the lack of um, evidence or foundation for believing that there was actually fraud being uncovered by these um, lists. Um, the chief justice referred to it as a, as a dragnet of sensitive information and noted that the ease of administration that might be gained by having these upfront disclosure requirements were not going to be sufficient to cross uh, the exacting scrutiny line on the First Amendment. And then the court went even further and held that this um, requirement actually was unconstitutional on its face, not just applied given the dramatic breadth and, and overbreath of the California disclosure requirements. Um, the, the liberal bloc led by Justice Sotomayor 
dissented. Um, doctrinally, their focus was on the standard review, and in particular, um, the fact that the majority had called for narrow tarrowing uh, in these sorts of uh, disclosure requirements. They objected to that and said that the level of scrutiny essentially should be commensurate with um, the, the, the amount of the, the intrusion disruption caused by the particular disclosure requirements. They would have upheld the California law as advancing important state interests in preventing fraud and the like. So I think, you know, in, in, in thinking about this case, I would say that the conclusion um, to me was not very surprising. We knew this was a very pro-First Amendment court going into the term, and I think this is a very strongly worded First Amendment decision. Uh, this was a, a loss not only for uh, California, but for the Biden administration, which had switched positions in the case, the, the Trump administration had filed a brief urging the court to review the case and arguing that the California requirement was unconstitutional. The Trump administration, or the Biden administration, after the court had agreed to hear the case, essentially flipped that position and, and largely defended the California requirements. And then the, the sort of lingering question that arises out of this is, what about the IRS form that, that California just copied in requiring the disclosures uh, for Schedule B of Form 990. And there, it's, it's a little bit unclear that the court, uh, in its opinion, uh, referred to the fact that there may be additional interests in the tax context, revenue gathering context, that theoretically might support these support, uh, disclosure requirements. So that's sort of a question that will remain to be answered and probably be litigated. Anyone have anything to add? So, so the court split along predictable ideological lines, but the amicus briefs didn't. And you saw the ACLU and the NAACP on the other side of this case uh, supporting the challengers. Um, so the charitable context is, you know, interesting. The other lingering question in the case, though, is what if you move from the charitable context to the electoral context? And what about disclosure regimes like that upheld in Citizens United by an eight to one vote and uh, upheld in Dovey Reed? Uh, and I don't know if this is a marker that will move us into the electoral area. Interesting. Well, there was another contentious case uh, that was decided on the last day of the term. Uh, that was Brinovich versus Democratic National Committee. Jess, you want to talk about that case? Sure. And uh, <clears throat> and, and thanks for uh, for having me back to this uh, panel. Uh, moment that might look like a panel on the Helsinki formula to those watching on cable, but, uh, but uh, it's actually about the Supreme Court term. <laughs> um, the uh, the case, this is actually one of the most uh, significant cases, uh, and it became even more significant when the Biden administration filed suit against uh, Georgia's new voting regulations adopted after the uh, November election. Uh, the uh, Brnovich uh, versus DNC case uh, involved uh, the uh, remaining part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. There were two uh, provisions of Arizona law that the DNC challenged uh, as uh, discriminatory against minority voters. Uh, the two provisions were one was a rule that a voter could not cast a ballot out of precinct, uh, that uh, if uh, uh, otherwise valid ballot just brought to the wrong precinct house. And they argued that uh, provision uh, disproportionately uh, affected minority voters for a number of reasons. They, uh, they, they move more frequently or voting precincts are uh, moved in their areas more often, 
that that one, uh, that provision tended to uh, invalidate even ballots for statewide offices that don't really matter what precinct you're in because everyone in the state has the same choice. The other provision was uh, a disallowal of third party groups from collecting ballots. Uh, critics call it ballot harvesting. This would be a, uh, a voter has an absentee ballot instead of mailing it uh, himself or herself, uh, it uh, gives it to a, a group that mails it or brings it to the registrar of voters. And that uh, provision also was challenged as discriminatory, in particular because Arizona has a lot of uh, Indian reservations and mail service on those reservations uh, is pretty spotty. Uh, many uh, Native Americans don't even have street numbers on their houses and they tend to get mail at post offices or, or central collection points. So they have a, a harder time, uh, it was argued, uh, getting those ballots into the mail, and this type of service is, is particularly helpful for them. The uh, Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, an uh, uh, en banc uh, decision, found those two provisions to violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, the Obama administration, when this suit first emerged, did not back this lawsuit. And uh, it may be that they thought that the facts in this case were not really a great one to uh, send up to the, the Supreme Court uh, that had recently struck down uh, effectively Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case. Well, uh, the, uh, the Ninth Circuit opinion by Judge Willie Fletcher stressed the history of discriminatory practices in Arizona and looked at these two provisions in that light to find that they violated the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Supreme Court in the 6-3 uh, split that we've talked about, uh, in this case, um, Justice Alito writing for the court, uh, found that uh, the Ninth Circuit had uh, had erred there in viewing these as violations. And he uh, did not go so far as to lay out very specific tests for Section 2 violations, but he talked about the factors that were going to matter and which mattered to the majority. Uh, one factor was uh, looking at the totality of the circumstances, not just these two individual provisions, but the many different ways that people can cast ballots in Arizona. And he said that Arizona makes it very easy to vote, and you have to look at the effect that these individual provisions have against this larger context of whether there are other barriers to voting or whether there are other ways that one can vote that make it easy. And he found Arizona to have uh, many other alternative ways of getting your vote counted and getting your vote filed. He also said that the uh, disparate impact approach, provisions that uh, can be shown statistically to have a greater impact on minority voters, uh, disparate impact being the way that, uh, for example, fair housing cases and other kinds of discrimination cases are sometimes evaluated, uh, that was not appropriate for this type of case. Uh, he thought uh, that uh, he looked. He was much more concerned about, say, discriminatory intent than discriminatory impact. Uh, and he said it's important to look at the context uh, uh, that uh, voting regulations had in the 1980s when the Voting Rights Act was uh, modified to uh, add, uh, to update, or uh, alter Section 2 to its current language. And so keeping in mind how, you know, what the voting provisions were then, uh, and that was a time when uh, people tended to cast votes in person much more so than they do now, uh, was also a factor to, to keep in mind. So all those things taken together, he said, uh, mean that uh, Arizona's uh, regulations are, are permissible. 
the dissenters took a different view, uh, as we'd expect. It was a, a Justice Kagan dissent. And she essentially said the totality of the circumstances that you should be looking at is the totality of the circumstances involving the Voting Rights Act. And what she characterized as a very broad mandate from Congress uh, using its uh, 15th Amendment power to uh, clear away all the uh, subtle ways as well as obvious ways that uh, uh, impediments to voting had been uh, placed in front of minority voters. And she uh, uh, strongly criticized what she uh, considered to be a very crabbed and cramped reading of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and uh, a lot of the post-case uh, commentary had to do with how hard is it going to be in the future for uh, challengers to raise Section 2 claims against voting procedures. And the analysis was really all over the map. I mean, some people saying this makes it extraordinarily hard. There's only a tiny sliver of a door left open to bring claims like that. Others arguing that uh, there was uh, uh, plenty of teeth left in Section 2 uh, and that uh, it uh, you know, may, not be, uh, may not have a huge effect on, on future cases going forward. One person who had that view, by the way, was Senator McConnell, who I was surprised to see in his statement following the case uh, praising the vitality and strength of Section 2 and how uh, and what a great uh, mechanism it is to uh, vindicate the rights of, of minority voters. Uh, we probably will see what the impact is uh, with that Georgia case that the uh, Biden administration filed, where they make a much more um, aggressive argument about uh, discriminatory intent uh, and the number of restrictions uh, may be uh, greater than we've seen in Arizona. Uh, and they also come right on the heels of an election that the uh, uh, lawmakers who passed the bill uh, were disappointed in. And so uh, we could, that may be the follow-up case that tells us how far uh, the Arizona decision is, is going to go. So that's the, the case. Um, uh, I have just one other thought, if there's time to, to add. Go ahead. And I would just say that it was interesting to me to look at um, this case, the Brnovich case, in contrast to the Bonta case that, that Greg just talked about involving donor disclosures, but not only because you had the same split uh, among the justices, but also because of the different way the court looked at state interests uh, versus, um, I guess, minority interests. And you saw in the donor disclosure case, the court took a very broad reading of the First Amendment and said, gee, there's never been any, uh, you, you've never based any investigation at all on these Schedule Bs that have been filed with the uh, Registry of Charitable Trusts. You've got other ways you can investigate conflicts of interest or fraud in charities and the uh, burden on these uh, donors. And again, these are very, this is a subset of donors. These are people who contributed $5,000 or more to a charity. And, and that, that may include all of us here, but uh, the, it may not include the typical donor to a, a nonprofit. So it's not like the NAACP case in the 50s, which was the rank and file lists. Here, this is a very small uh, group of, of, of better off donors that we're talking about. And you contrast that to the, uh, the uh, 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 Brnovich case, that was the Bonta case rather, uh, where uh, Justice Alito said, you don't need an instance of fraud to ever have happened to, for the state to be justified in taking steps to prevent it from ever happening. In other words, he was not looking for evidence that these measures that Arizona implemented that burdened to one degree or another minority voters had uh, were uh, 
reasonable responses to things that had, had, had taken place or were preventing fraud that they knew was being committed. So, the, uh, and there you had Congress acting under a specific constitutional grant of authority. So it, it was interesting to, to look at how, in some instances, they gave a great deal of deference to the state legislature and state authorities enforcing their prerogatives. And in the other case, they thought they were uh, quite negligible. Interesting. So Josh, there was, um, Obamacare was back up uh, again. So uh, what happened? And uh, is there a third book in it for you? You know, my first book was called Unprecedented about the NFB case. My second book was called Unraveled about Kinky Burwell and Hobby Lobby. The third book will probably be called Unreviewable because the court didn't touch the case. Um, this is the issue that never seems to go away. Obamacare was enacted in 2010 and it was immediately under siege uh, litigation uh, across the country. Um, Perhaps the most important aspect of that litigation was the so-called individual mandate. This was a provision that I think at least required people to purchase health insurance. Uh, not everyone agreed with me. Uh, to some people, the law had no mandate, but merely imposed a tax on those who decide to go uninsured. Uh, we know the story. It goes to the Supreme Court. The court splits five to four. The Chief Justice finds that the mandate cannot be supported by the uh, commerce power or the necessary and proper power. It cannot be supported by the taxing power. But then in part 3C of his opinion, we get to the so-called saving construction. The chief writes that as courts, uh, they have a duty to find ways to uphold statutes if there's a reasonable reading that accomplishes that goal. And he found such a reading. He adopted the saving construction in which the law had no mandate, but it merely imposed a tax on the uninsured. Roberts was fairly clear that was not the best reading of the statute, but it was a permissible reading of the statute, which allowed him to uphold uh, um, almost the entirety of the statute. That was the first case. Um, fast forward about five years. In 2017, Congress tried and tried and tried to repeal Obamacare, and they were not successful. Most famously, John McCain gave the thumbs down, and he put the kibosh on the repeal bill, which wouldn't have even repealed the law, but just would have changed it a bit. So then Republicans tried a different tactic. They used the budget reconciliation process, which we know only requires 51 votes, and they used that to modify the ACA. They didn't actually repeal the mandate, even though every politician said they did. All they did was they reduced the penalty to zero dollars and zero cents. So if you failed to have insurance, you paid a penalty of zero, which is nothing. Um, around the time that this bill was passed, I thought, huh, this change seems to topple the saving construction, right? The saving construction is premised in the fact that the law raises revenue. The law no longer raises revenue. So therefore, we have no more mandate. Right, it's unconstitutional. I wasn't the only one who had this thought. Uh, Texas and a number of other states brought lawsuits challenging the ACA. Later, individual private plaintiffs brought the lawsuit. The biggest hurdle here was not the merits. In fact, I think the merits are probably the easiest part of the case. If the court actually got to the merits, the mandate's unconstitutional. Severability, different story, but the, the merits itself were never particularly tough. The hardest part was always standing. 
And let me sketch these two arguments out. The states argued that they were injured. Why? Well, if people are no longer subject to the mandate, uh, they may decide to go on Medicaid or go off Medicaid and, and do different things. And those uh, steps affect the state as the employer. There are certain forms that fill out and certain costs. So they say there's an injury traceable to the decision to zero out the penalty. Okay. The private plaintiffs made a different argument. They said, well, we know that the penalty is zero, but the mandate still exists. And the mandate is still unconstitutional, and that's our injury in fact. And we want a declaration, we want a, 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 an injunction even to bar the government from enforcing the mandate. And you might ask, wait a minute, how do you enforce a mandate that's not enforceable? This was always the biggest problem for the plaintiffs, which in the end did them in. Uh, the district court accepted arguments that I and others advanced about severability, and the district court even went further than I would and declared the entire ACA unconstitutional. Uh, the Fifth Circuit didn't quite go that far. What the Fifth Circuit said was, well, we are going to link the standing inquiry with the severability inquiry. We're going to link them. And whatever provisions are injuring the plaintiffs, we will find that those provisions are unconstitutional and sever or cut them off. Right? This is what you might call standing through inseverability. Again, I take some credit here because the court relied on my work, but what do I know? I got reversed. Um, goes to the Supreme Court. Texas argues the case, and the Trump administration argues on behalf of Texas for the most part, right? The SG did not support Texas state standing. Instead, the Texas SG adopted, I'm sorry, the US SG adopted theory similar to mine. And let me just explain it to you, right? If we assume that the mandate is inseparable from other provisions, we have this sort of glob. Right, And all these provisions glob together, create an injury. And the court can issue an injunction to stop that glob. Therefore, the injury is traceable to that glob, and enjoining those glob actions could redress your injury. This is what you might call the bootstrap theory of standing, that if we bootstrap together several provisions, you have the unconstitutional provisions, and those provisions inseparable from the unconstitutional provision, we're left with this glob that the court can enjoin. That argument applies only to the private plaintiffs. Um, I made that argument in my amicus brief, and so did the SG. I'm pretty sure the plaintiffs made it themselves in the trial court. We'll get back to that point later. All right, it goes to Supreme Court, and I honestly expected the court would rule on severability. They would say, well, the mandate's unconstitutional, but we just sever the mandate, everyone go home, call it a day. And that would have been actually the best way to rule because it ends the case, right? There's no more litigation. There's no more disputes for, well, maybe someone else might have standing, right? Maybe there's a quitam action somewhere where someone raises inseverability and standing's not an issue because it's, it's, it's a prosecution. But we get a decision from the court seven to two, not the vote I expected. And it was not by the chief for the first time. He wrote uh, NFIB, he wrote King v. Burwell. This was by Justice Breyer. I was like, whoa, where, how did Breyer get this opinion? Where'd that come from? I was... I was shocked. I see Adam smirking. Yeah, but I, I, I was kind of shocked. Justice Breyer focused on one of the three legs of standing, which is called traceability. He didn't talk about injury. In fact, he did not want to touch that because once you touch injury, you acknowledge you're still a mandate. He did not touch that. He, he focused on traceability. And what Breyer said is, even if we assume there's an injury, that injury is not traceable to anyone because there's nothing we can do to enjoin 
the enforcement of the mandate because no one enforces it. It's simply a provision that stands by itself. Uh, the majority opinion was about 15 pages long. I think someone mentioned uh, Fulton was about 15 pages. The Obamacare case was the same length. Breyer wrote like a surgical slice through the case. It was so thin that it got seven votes. Uh, Breyer also rejected state standing. And I think he was probably right on this part because the mandate does not operate upon the states, right? They're only tangentially related. But last, we had the census case, you may recall, that said uh, if there's even a possibility of an injury to a state, they're standing. I don't know how you square the Obamacare ruling and state standing with the census case. I think they're at odds. But, you know, that was last year. This is this year. Every year is a new term, as they say. Then we get to the other opinions. Um, Justice Thomas concurred, and I think he was gritting his teeth the same way that perhaps Justice Sotomayor and Kagan gritted their teeth in Fulton. I think Thomas gritted his teeth in the Obamacare case. He didn't like it, but he said, under my theory of standing, this doesn't work, right? Thomas rejected the inseparability through standing theory. He said, this, this doesn't work. You can only consider inseparability at the remedy phase, not the standing phase. What about the majority? Did the majority actually reject the inseparability through standing theory? Not exactly. They deemed it waived. The worst, Greg, Greg's a real lawyer, I'm not. But the worst argument ever is, I'm sorry, you've waived that position. You can't raise that. Now, I think the plaintiffs raised it. I sure as hell, I mean, I'm not a party, but you know, I, I raised it, right? This was in the litigation. I think it was present. I think the waiver was a punt. The court didn't want to touch it because it's a very messy issue. So Thomas said, I don't buy staying from inseparability. The majority was like, yeah, we're not going to touch it. Okay, then we get to the dissent, and boy, oh boy, was it long. Uh, not quite as long as the Fulton dissent, but Alito was busy this term. He wrote a very long dissent, which also didn't address individual standing. He focused only on the state standing, which again was perplexing. I thought the private plaintiffs had much stronger arguments, but what do I know, right? Um, Alito said the states, in fact, are injured. And he also hinted that the majority just applies different rules because it's Obamacare. This is sort of a play on Justice Scalia's King v. Burrell dissent, where all these rules go out the window for Obamacare. So in the end, seven to two, the court turns away this challenge. Are we done yet? Of course we're not done. I got another book to write. Um, I think actually the title, uh, John, might be undefeated because Obamacare is batting 1,000, the three for three. Um, we're not done. Uh, first off, the plaintiffs can go back and simply plead clearly the inseparability theory, although that probably won't work. The more likely path is someone who's subject to an ACA enforcement action raises his argument. Imagine there's a false claims act case against someone for, for fraud under the ACA. He says, well, you know what? You can't enforce this. The entire thing's unconstitutional. At that point, Article Three standing is established as a affirmative defense. This is like the Bond case the, uh, from many years ago. When the government's coming after you, you can raise separation of powers claims. And at that point, a court will have to say, yeah, the mandate's unconstitutional, but those provisions are severable which is what this case is always about. Sooner or later, some court somewhere will say that the Obamacare mandate's unconstitutional and it's severable. The court could have resolved this and put us up our misery, but instead they decide to punt it, which lets me write maybe, oh God, a fourth book? Is this like uh, the, 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 the Star Wars prequels? I don't know. George Lucas will have to give me some advice on this. Uh, uh, but, but here we are. It's a pleasure to be here. And this is a Helsinki formula infomercial. You guys are the before, not the after. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. I, I knew we were going to be falling behind in terms of our time, but I, I, before I get to things like the shadow docket in the next term, I, I do want to cover at least quickly a couple of 
uh, uh, cases. So, so one of them is the, the Mahanoy case, a disgruntled cheerleader. Uh, so Greg, do you want to tell us a little bit about sure. that case? So this is a case about Mean Girls meets the First Amendment. So the plaintiffs in the case, VL, tried out for the varsity cheerleading squad in her public high school in Pennsylvania, and to her horror, found out that she made only the junior junior varsity uh, cheerleading squad. Uh, that weekend with a friend at a, at a cocoa hut, she decided to express her displeasure with that result and sent a Snapchat post or story, which to, to paraphrase said, F cheer at school and literally F everything else, along with a picture of her and her friend uh, raising a, a middle finger salute to everybody. Um, that post was then shared with other friends got to the cheerleading squad and got around the school. The school uh, cheerleading squad took action by suspending her for the year, and she took action by suing the school in federal court for violating her First Amendment rights. So both the district court and the court of appeals held in favor of her and found that her rights were violated. The Third Circuit in this case, though, did so based on the categorical rule that the framework established by Tinker versus Des Moines independent schools for evaluating First Amendment claims in the school context, which is to say that um, the court in that case, which is the famous um, Vietnam armband case, held that the First Amendment doesn't stop at the schoolhouse gate, but that schools retain uh, flexibility to discipline speech when it is substantially or material disruptive of the classroom and, and like activities at school. And what the Third Circuit held was that that framework was categorically inapplicable when speech originates off campus as the social media um, post in this case did. The, the school sought review of the Third Circuit's categorical rule, the court granted review. And um, if you listen to one oral argument this year, you should listen to the oral argument in the Mahanoy case, both because the advocates Lisa Vlad and David Cole were fantastic and that the questions were great and it's highly accessible and fun to listen to. Um, uh, to. To sort of piggyback a little bit on what Josh had just said, this is another case where Justice Breyer wrote for a surprisingly uh, high majority of justices, eight justices, in an opinion that is probably about 15 pages, maybe a little bit less. Um, and, and I think, you know, ultimately this is really a win for both sides. Um, the school got the rule it wanted and the plaintiff got its symbolic at least victory in the Supreme Court and I think a dollar in nominal damages. So the court agreed with the school and held that the first, the Third Circuit's categorical rule against the application of Tinker to off-campus speech was wrong. And this was really important because um, as many of the meekest priests um, told the court, um, bullying and harassment originating off-campus can be a, a great danger in schools. You have threats aimed at schools at teachers and students, failure to follow academic rules and the like, um, all of that can be disciplined in the school. It would make little sense to say that just because you sent your post at the Cocoa Hut, it was somehow different and the court recognized that. The school did emphasize though that, you know, when speech does originate off campus, schools probably, the court emphasizes schools have a higher burden probably to meet under the Tinkus Tinker standard and the schools have to be particularly careful when it comes to disciplining religious and political speech and the like. Um, but applying that framework, the court did side with BL. It found that the, the posts, while maybe a little bit crude, didn't arise to the level of fighting words or anything like that, and the school hadn't identified enough of a uh, 
substantiation of its argument that this unduly disrupted its activities uh, on campus. Uh, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch concurred in which they sort of grudgingly went along with the court's decision, but argued that the standard and the application of Tinkert ought to be you know, pretty strict. Justice Thomas dissented in a true originalist-like fashion said that basically schools have been punishing students who mouthed off for 150 years, so there was no reason the school could do it in this case. Um, just a few concluding thoughts. Um, first, you know, I, I think this is a really important decision for schools because if the court had said that, in effect, strict, strict scrutiny applied to any effort to discipline speech that originates off campus, particularly in the social media day, that could have created some real threats for schools. The result's a little bit unsatisfying in that, you know, the focus remains, you know, where's the exact line of how far schools can go? And I suspect that, you know, there's going to be a lot more litigation like that in the future. And then last, this really is sort of another example where the, the court spoke with surprising unanimity um, on a, you know, subject that, you know, traditionally has divided the court by four or in ideological camps. And so from that perspective, the decision was noteworthy too. Well done. Uh, before I get to, to the other topics, I, 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 we can't leave without talking about a very important property rights case. Uh, Jess, if you could talk about Cedar Point Nursery versus Hassett. Oh, sure. Um, this, uh, this is uh, a case of, of, of great significance going forward because it might apply to all kinds of regulations, but it arose in the context of, uh, of, a, of labor organizing in, in California. Uh, the, uh, I, I, uh, I went back and I looked at the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the passage of the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in California in 1975 and uh, Governor Brown signing it. And it was a very big event. It capped more than a decade of what was considered to be strife in the agricultural fields in California. There was a labor organizing movement led by Cesar Chavez to organize farm workers uh, in, in California. Uh, growers did not support that. Uh, and there was uh, at times violence. There were nationwide boycotts and support of farm workers. It was a very big deal. And it led to this day to a bust of Cesar Chavez being in the in the Oval Office. I, I don't think it was there last year, but uh, this year I, I noticed it in some some photographs. The uh, after the Agricultural Labor Relations Act was passed and oh, one other bit of context, the National Labor Relations Act uh, passed in the 1930s excludes farm workers and domestic workers. So they are not covered. They do not have organizing rights under federal law. So California adopting this law, in their view, they filled in a gap that the Congress had left out in the 30s. So uh, farm workers don't have organizing rights under federal law, but they do under state law in California as of 1975. It created uh, an agency that also has a name very similar to its federal counterpart, the Agricultural Labor Relations Board. And one of the first things it did was adopt a regulation to enforce uh, its, its mandate called the Access Regulation. And this regulation uh, allows union organizers to uh, obtain a limited right of entry to uh, uh, farms uh, over the objection of the farm owners. If they, if they serve the, uh, the farm owner or the, the grower and they file a notice with the ALRB, they then can take access to the farm uh, for a limited period of time and speak with the workers there uh, for one hour before their shift, one hour after the shift, or during one hour for lunchtime. There was a, uh, in the 1950s, the Supreme Court upheld a order from the National Labor Relations Board in a specific case 
ordering uh, an employer to allow union organizers onto its property to meet with workers after finding that the organizers had no other plausible way to reach them. But it was not a blanket right. It was very much case specific to that employer and to that organizing effort. The California regulation is a blanket right that the unions obtained to enter uh, the, uh, the grower's property for this organizing purpose. Um, the, uh, the measure was immediately challenged on property rights grounds and other grounds by growers in 1975, but a divided California Supreme Court uh, upheld the access regulation and the US Supreme Court declined to review that decision. So that's where it stood until this year. Uh, a, uh, the, uh, and as a practical matter, incidentally, it's, it's not used that much because the farm worker movement has had other issues that have uh, sapped its, its strength over, over the years. But it did exist and it was used against these two growers, uh, Cedar Point Nursery in the far northern part of California. It's a, a company that uh, makes uh, straw, uh, prepares strawberry seedlings, small, relatively small company, very far from the kind of agribusiness uh, images one might think of in the Central Valley of California. The other grower was exactly like those giant agribusiness type uh, employers, Fowler Packing Company in Fresno, which was a major, uh, major uh, uh, vegetable and fruit uh, packing company. And both of them were targeted by the United Farm Workers uh, and both of them uh, objected and brought this uh, property rights suit uh, against the uh, Agricultural Labor Relations Board. Uh, the regulation was upheld uh, in the lower courts, but it was uh, reversed again by 6-3 majority uh, by the Supreme Court, which uh, looked at it under a takings lens and found that, uh, that essentially this regulation uh, amounted to a taking of private property without uh, just compensation that it was effectively an easement that the state had granted to union organizers to enter private property, but provided them no compensation for this easement. Uh, and as a result, uh, it could not stand. Uh, it was a, a Fifth Amendment, via 14th Amendment takings violation against the, against the growers. Uh, this is uh, significant, uh, historically it's significant because the access regulation was essentially the apex of Chavez's movement. It began to sort of fall apart after the, the mid 70s. Uh, and it's also significant because it could apply to other contexts. There are other instances where uh, states may grant some kind of public uh, or limited access to private property. And now there is a framework to examine those regulations uh, as a taking, depending on what kind of rights uh, they impinge upon. Uh, the Chief Justice pointed out that the right to exclude is a principal uh, right of private property, the choice of who gets to enter your property or not. And the state of California had uh, intruded on that right, essentially taken that right, by allowing organizers to enter in this, uh, uh, in this way. Uh, and so we'll have to see how that might apply to other types of situations where the state has authorized people to enter private property without the owner's consent. Now, we can think of some examples that are not exactly right. For example, uh, uh, health and safety inspectors, they might be coming from a OSHA type agency to see how are, what are the working conditions or uh, health inspectors at a, to check uh, if a meatpacking plant or a, you know food processing facility or vaccine manufacturing facility in Baltimore is properly uh, conducting its work and uh, attending to uh, public health needs. The, uh, the 
majority said that uh, they weren't too worried about those kinds of things because those uh, convey a benefit to the property owner, which, you know, I guess one could could think about that, whether they view that as a benefit or not to have state inspectors coming out of their property to issue citations. But in any event, uh, it said that's a different thing. And also there are licensing schemes where there might be a requirement to permit periodic inspections. And so they tried to distinguish what California was doing, which is basically giving a third party, the, the union, uh, the right to enter uh, onto that land. The dissenters uh, obviously disagreed. <laughs> they they found uh, that this was not really a taking, that the rights that the organizers had were very limited, and they also uh, deferred uh, greatly to the Agricultural Labor Relations Board's findings that the nature of uh, agricultural labor, unlike industrial labor, makes it very difficult to reach workers and they cannot meaningfully exercise their self-organizing rights uh, if they can never talk to union organizers. Uh, and uh, so they would have left uh, the law as it was and did not view this as a taking. One question left open, and then I'll wrap up here, uh, is, okay, if it's a taking, that then the, then, you know, the state can, can uh, impose a taking. It can condemn property or impose easements, but the, the price is just compensation. So what is the just compensation? Normally look at the, the fair market value. What is the fair market value of allowing two to six, say, organizers to enter property uh, for a few hours over, say, a two-week period? How would you calculate that? Uh, how would how would you you figure it? Is it is it the value of the union contract that the grower doesn't end up having to sign? Or is it the value of uh, access to this very, you know, in many cases, hot and dusty property? I, I don't know. That's an interesting question that we might see uh, examined in the, in the lower courts of how, how do you put a price tag on this taking now that we know that it is, is a taking? So I'm going to call an audible. I'm, I'm hoping we'll have time for audience questions, although I, I should have suspected this. We have a lot to talk about, and the, and the time is running quickly. So I had had four topics that I wanted to, to talk about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of say what the four topics are, and then I'm going to ask you each, pick, a, pick one of those four or something else you'd like to talk about and offer your comments, and then time permitting, we'll get to audience questions. So one is the shadow docket. There were a lot of interesting questions, particularly pandemic-related questions uh, that the court considered uh, this term around. A second topic uh, is telephonic arguments. They're probably going away now. What was good about them? What was bad about them? A third topic is what have we learned about Justices Gorsuch, uh, Barrett, and Kavanaugh in their relatively brief period on the court? Uh, and then the last topic was, you know, next term. There are, are at least three major cases. There's an abortion case in the docket, Second Amendment case in the docket, uh, an establishment clause uh, on the docket. What are we thinking about uh, for the next term? So you pick one of those four or, or, or go with another one. Josh, let's start with you. Thanks, John. Uh, I'll start with the Trump appointees, Barrett, uh, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch. They are not all cut from the same cloth. And I think we've already seen this term, how there's sort of divides. Um, in a couple high-profile cases, Kavanaugh and Barrett wrote one side and Gorsuch from the other. Uh, I'll take an example on the shadow docket. There was a free exercise case from California where the majority agreed that the restrictions on worship were unconstitutional. But then there was the issue of singing. Could the state ban singing? Uh, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch basically said, no, they can't ban singing, some disagreement, but they, they were on the same page. But then Barrett and Kavanaugh said, well, it's the burden of the people of faith to demonstrate that they need this rule. 
then go to Fulton, right? We have uh, the three conservatives, uh, Thomas, Lito, and Gorsuch saying, overall Smith. And then you have Barrett and Kavanaugh saying, whoa, 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 not yet, not yet. So I think we're seeing certain types of divisions. And in at least two cases, I think, the conservatives said that the two Trump appointees were lacking fortitude. I'm a piece of Newsweek about it uh, this week. So I think we're still learning a lot about Barrett and Kavanaugh. I think Gorsuch is on board with Thomas and uh, Alito. I think that that's where the court sort of aligns on a lot of cases. Right. Great. Um, I just follow up on that really quickly because it's so interesting. I mean, I, I do think that one of the most noteworthy aspects of this term is that Justice Barrett aligned herself with Justice Kavanaugh and the chief towards the middle and not, you know, necessarily with Gorsuch and Thomas. But as Josh said, I mean, I think two or three years out with the Trump appointees, it's it, it they are by no means moving in a pack and moving together, as, as is often true when justices come on the court, you know, even under the same administrations. Most of the most interesting infighting on the court is taking place on the right these days, as, we, as we've sort of learned in talking through the some of the opinions today. Um, I'll, I'll talk very briefly about the telephonic arguments so I had the, since I had the opportunity to do a couple of those this term. Um, it, for an advocate who's appeared before the Supreme Court, it's an incredibly foreign experience to be in your office alone speaking into a telephone to the justices uh, of the Supreme Court. Um, there, there, there are certainly advantages to it. You can use notes and, and um, you know, take advantage of other things in your office. Um, you've got an opportunity, I think a greater opportunity to answer questions. The fact that the justices are all asking questions is, I think, fantastic, uh, particularly with respect to Justice Thomas. I mean, I think the quality of the questions um, was, was you know, unsurpassed. Um, I do think, though, that there's a big difference and that with the telephonic format, you never really had those moments where you could see that an argument was just going down quickly and crashing before your eyes um, as an advocate yeah, or <laughs> in, in the courtroom in an audience where you sort of have those moments in an argument where it's sort of clear that, you know, five justices or more sort of coming to this conclusion or, you know, viewing this argument is a really bad argument that's not going to work. And I think it was sort of harder to gauge that during the course of, uh, a, you know, hour long conversation. We we're just sort of going down the line of answering questions. I, you know, I think we all hope and, and, you know, I think it's likely the justices will be back in the courtroom next fall, but it'll be interesting to see if they sort of carry over some of the things that did seem to work uh, and seem to improve the quality of arguments for everybody, I think, um, once they're back in the courtroom or whether it sort of devolves back into the feeding frenzy that we've seen uh, up to this point. Adam? Uh, I'd like to uh, say good riddance to telephone arguments and hope the feeding frenzy is back. Um, <laughs> for you to say. <laughs> the the lockstep arrangement where people in order of seniority ask a question whether they have one or not and if they don't have one they'll repeat one they've already said is really unsatisfactory and the feeding frenzy on the bench is actually a form of deliberation you know the justices haven't discussed the cases before they go on the bench and while in form it looks like you're asking questions of the advocate as john roberts once said, and he of course was a stellar Supreme Court advocate, really you're a basketball backboard and they're bouncing questions off each other and communicating with each other and building on each other's comments and responding to each other's questions. And that dynamic process is very valuable to the court and almost entirely lost in the endless locks. And it's not an hour, it's two hours 
and it and 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 also the court's efforts to try to you know someone theoretically has 30 minutes and someone has 10 minutes everyone ends up getting the full round of questions so i am uh, eager for the court to get back on the bench an open question is whether live audio which is an unalloyed good uh will remain even with the court back on the bench but i think the um the downside justice thomas's participation great a chance to have a look at justice barrett's whose questions were really exceptionally good right out of the box great live audio great but this lockstep one after the other uh, form, no good at all. And then just from a journalistic perspective, it really robs you of your ability to see where the case is going. Because again, as John Roberts wrote when he was on the DC circuit, it's a very easy way to tell which side is going to win because the justices in real arguments ask only hostile questions, almost only hostile questions. They're, they're asking questions of the side that's going to lose. Um, and you just have to do the mechanical exercise of counting up who's getting the least questions to know who's going to win. Yes, no one's picked up on the next next term. I'll leave you to pick your topic, but uh, that one's still available. Mm. <laughs> uh, um, yes, well, you know, the, the, the next term already has on it the, the kind of, of cases that we will uh, delight in seeing argued in the courtroom. Uh, we have a gun case and an abortion case, and we might also get an affirmative action case. So uh, although this term was, was consequential in some ways, I think that uh, we'll have a much uh, better picture of how the, the court has evolved uh, in, in, uh, in the next term. I mean, the, the gun case is the one that uh, people have been waiting for since, since 2010 when, when the McDonald decision applied the, uh, the Heller case to the, the states. And the first one that asks, uh, you know, how far does the Second Amendment, or not how far, but at least does it extend further than uh, the right to keep a firearm in the home for, for self-defense? The abortion case uh, from Mississippi uh, looks at the viability standard that we had under uh, Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, and, uh, you know, puts, uh, puts to the test some of the very uh, vague language that uh, has passed as the as the standard since Casey about undue burdens uh, on the the right to to abortion uh, and then the affirmative action case which uh, we're, we're waiting to see what the Biden administration thinks uh, about whether uh, race conscious admissions are are permissible I know this is the a question that we're all uh, on tender hooks to, to find out uh, how they might come down on that one uh, but uh, that would be almost a trifecta of, of hot button issues going uh, ahead of the, the midterm elections. They may not take that case uh, at all, or if they do in time for, for next term. But uh, yeah, I mean, so far, uh, so good. Yeah, another establishment clause too, uh, about a program, a government program that's otherwise generally available, but question. That's right, the schools, the, program, right? the main, uh, the yeah. main uh, uh, schools program, and that's whether our religious schools can qualify for the, the subsidy. Right. Uh, taxpayer subsidies. So yeah, that would be another one that would uh, that uh, again. I think we can guess which way the court is inclined to move on on that issue, but uh, there may be specifics and and nuances that uh, that uh, that uh, make that case yeah. uh, you know less predictable. That one's Carson v. Macon. Uh, so let me now open it up to uh, people here if they have any any questions, uh, and if not, uh, I guess while we're waiting for the first question, 
uh, I will uh, uh, ask uh, Greg, Adam, or Josh if they wanted to comment on one of the other topics that I prevented them from talking about, perhaps. Well, so we haven't talked about the shadow docket, which yeah. has really spiked in the Trump years, and we'll see whether it continues to spike. But this is also not a particularly satisfactory part of the court's work, where you know, on emergency applications, on very thin briefing, without oral argument, without good deliberation, the court will, as a functionally decide really important issues, COVID, election, eviction moratorium, uh, in often one-line orders with no reasoning. Um, it, the merits docket is tiny, the shadow docket is increasing, and it would be good if things moved in the opposite direction. But, but it's not increasing because of anything the court's doing, really. I mean, it's the cases are coming to it. We did have a COVID crisis, and we had sort of a unique situation in the prior administration, at least, with nationwide injunctions and the like. And I also think that, you know, the court has already always dealt with these emergency requests, and it's only recently that we've, we've called it the, the shadow docket, even though it takes place in the light of day. Like yeah. So, so, so I, I don't have the numbers handy, but the number of SG applications in the last few years. Now, yeah. to be sure, as Clearly a consequence not. of nationwide injunctions being imposed by district courts, large part of it. But nonetheless, the, 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 the data is such that we've just had a lot more of it than we did in the Obama and Bush years. Yeah, and I, I don't think we've had a single SG emergency application yet this term. Am I right? I think we're, we're up to June, July already, not, 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 not one in the Biden administration. So maybe we'll have a slowdown. Yeah, Steve Flattock, I know, has, has uh, written a lot on this, and, and the number of, of SG emergency grant requests went up by fourfold, fivefold uh, during the Trump administration. Roger Pilon, you have a uh, question? Yes, uh, Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Um, a media question and a legal question um, for the media folks on the panel. Um, I was struck by Cedar Point. Uh, the mainstream media, especially NPR, treated it entirely as a union case. Whereas some of us in the uh, conservative libertarian legal community treated it uh, uh, as mainly a property case. I wonder from a media perspective what either of you would have to say about that. And then just on the legal point, you raise the compensation problem. Uh, there's also the uh, public uh, use issue. Uh, and even if it's treated as public benefit, which of course is not the language of the Fifth Amendment, it does raise a question of how uh, the entry would be treated uh, if it uh, if that issue were to be central to it in uh, in, in the kinds of employment cases uh, uh, that you're that you're mentioning. Uh, well, uh, in terms of portraying this as a a labor case or a, or a property case, uh, I think that you know often you'll have cases that that are you know have several you know Im implicate several different areas of law. I think the I think for the you know for the uh, news media, uh, it's easier to understand it as a labor case. I mean, those are the facts, and the facts are, are kind of dramatic. There's a particular history here, uh, and uh, so that that's sort of what stands out, uh, you know, illustratively. Uh, but you're right, uh, and I, I try to suggest this going forward. The implications are going to be in many other areas of law because. There really aren't, uh, no other state has uh, an identical regulation like California does. Uh, I suppose there could be a question of, uh, you know, what California does next. They probably will come up with something closer to the NLRB approach of having kind of ad hoc uh, uh, authorizations for, for entry. 
uh, for, but, uh, but yeah, the more important question is how does this affect other land use regulations? Uh, you know, at what point do they become takings? Uh, so, uh, yeah, as we go forward, I think you'll start seeing it characterized more as like an environmental case or, or, or you know, or a, a public safety case. Uh, property cases are, are hard to describe to, uh, uh, to uh, an audience. Adam, anything to add to that? No. Okay. Do you think there's any kind of an appetite? Let me get a question over here. Uh, uh, any kind of an appetite to revisit Kilo? Yeah. Yeah, there, there was a, um, a cert denial uh, at the very end of the term where three justices said they were open to revisiting Kilo. It was right. Gorsuch, Thomas, and then kind of uh, Kavanaugh. Alito, no. Um, so maybe they're waiting for the right vehicle, maybe there are problems, but I think this is the moment if you want to overrule Kilo. I can't imagine there are five votes to keep Kilo on the books now. This this might be a unique moment to reverse that case. Okay. Question back here. Hi there. I have a question about uh, Tanton and Fulton and how they relate to each other. And is there any way we can understand what happened in Fulton to be informed by what had just happened on the shadow docket with Tandon? Uh, and uh, what's the relationship between uh, between the the decisions of those two cases and how the one might have impacted the other? I, I think this at a broad level of generality, the same theory holds in both cases. As soon as you give a secular activity permission, you have to give the religious activity that same status. People call this the most favored nation theory of the free exercise clause. And a version of that happened in Fulton, uh, where a, a secular exemption, even if it only exists as a matter of theory, is good enough to require a religious exemption. Anyone have anything to add? Okay. I, I think the court may have said everything to say in Tandon and taken a more narrow approach in Fulton. Um, I think someone mentioned earlier, Alito may have lost the majority opinion. I think he may have. I think it's plausible. Breyer had this, uh, I'm sorry, Roberts had this super narrow uh, approach and that, that they were able to get gets, uh, get all the votes on it. So I think Tandon is probably the most accurate statement of the Supreme Court's uh, uh, precedence now, even though it was done in a shadow docket case with, that I mentioned, zero deliberation, zero public argument. So I think that, that that's where the court is now and, and Fulton was just kind of a, oh, whatever, we'll get rid of it. Last question over here. Um, with the uh, this is a methodological question, so with the uh, shift in the court's personnel, now with six justices having some sort of allegiance to originalism or textualism, are you seeing more references, more, more use of legal history, either in the opinions themselves uh, or in the briefing that is being uh, presented to the court? And I wouldn't say I've seen a market shift but i would uh, certainly not i mean we've seen it in the briefing over the last decade or so that there's more focus on originalism given the interest in that on the, the right and the court um i think this is another area where it's not entirely clear that the justices are are you know lockstep and sync and how they're thinking about that i mean it's sort of noteworthy in that the penis case um, about the, the pipeline this term that, that Justice Barrett split off and, and wrote from a more originalist perspective there. So that may be a sign that she is going to take a more originalist approach than some of the other um, conservative justices. Anything else? Uh, well, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. Um, please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you, everybody.